Hi everyone, this is the Triage Podcast. I'm Rachna. And I'm Christy. And Natalie can't be here with us today. She's actually finishing up finals. She is an MPH student, so soon she'll be saving the world. But for now, she has some tests to study for, so we're wishing her the best. So today we have a very heavy topic. Um, We're going to be talking about healthcare disparities in different communities that um, are especially impacted by COVID-19. So before we really get into that, we just wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, the silver linings of COVID-19, if you could even call it that or find them. Because, you know, the past, I think, two months now have been really rough for everyone. So we were trying to think of different things that we've kind of gotten out of this time. And one thing that we were talking about before we started recording is the digital connections that we've been having with everyone. Yes. Um, There's a lot of people that I've talked to in the past few weeks that are people that I don't normally talk to on a regular basis. But since we're all just trying to seek out that connection, since we can't meet people in real life, I've been trying to like connect to these people more. And even with a one hour, um, you know, Zoom call or Facebook call, I've been able to talk to them and really catch up with them. So I think that's been really nice. I think so too. And it kind of shows you how much time you really do have when the world is quote unquote normal, just to hop on the phone with someone for a few minutes and have that bit of connection. I I know we were talking about this before as well, and we kind of touch on it in this episode, is that COVID-19 has given everyone a greater appreciation for essential workers and for nurses. So in terms of the essential workers, for years, many states and people countrywide have been fighting for a higher minimum wage. And now we see that like a direct correlation between the wages that people in grocery stores, in restaurants, in delivery services and other essential services Um, how much they need a livable wage because they really do serve our society in such a great capacity. And nurses as well. I feel like when you think about hospitals and the healthcare system, you're always thinking about doctors, but nurses really are providing a lot of that patient-centered care and are on the front lines of working with patients. And so I'm happy that they're getting their, um, they're getting their time to shine. Yeah. And with that greater appreciation, I think what we're all hoping for and what these nurses and doctors and um, other essential workers are hoping for is some sort of hazard pay. I don't know how that's going to happen for a lot of these people, but I see a lot of articles online about people um, rallying and protesting for these higher wages. So I'm really hoping for these people's sake that they're able to get those. Yeah, I agree. And I think this also another silver lining about this is it's really brought public health to the center. I saw this, what was that article title that's been going around that public health is the the forgotten it's child? The, it's like the bridesmaid. Always a bridesmaid, never the bride. Yeah. So, NPR. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just something that people never talk about, but it's something that's so important. And especially at times like these, we realize how we need to really put more focus into that so that we could prevent things from happening in the future. Yeah, and we talk, I feel like the main point of our conversation today is talking about 
the social flaws in our society that then leak into the healthcare system. And so hopefully after this, we have a greater focus on insurance and accessibility to healthcare, on the social determinants of health and everything that goes along with it, and you know Medicaid and Medicare. And so as we'll talk about for these next uh, couple of minutes, hopefully you all can be on board with us and see how important those social ter- determinants of health are to our society. Yeah, so we're just going to go through a, diff- uh, a few different populations that we have really seen be affected by COVID more than, you know, they should be. And I think we're going to try to delve into how, how this actually happened to each of these populations. So our first population is people of color and ethnic minorities. And we kind of touched upon this in our first episode that um, there are some communities that have more health risks. So say it's high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, and those uh, communities are going to be more affected by COVID because that is, um, they see with the data that those are the people that are getting worse outcomes with the disease. And I think especially with minority communities, they have higher rates of these diseases. So it just all kind of ties in together. So with some statistics, uh, they saw that the death rates with Black and African-American people with COVID-19 was 92.3 deaths per 100,000 people. And with Hispanic and Latino people, it was 74.3. And that is compared to a 45.2 person death rate with white people and a 34.5 death rate per Asian people. And again, this is per 100,000 people. So... I feel like that number just speaks for itself. It's just, that is literally double um, the amount of people that are getting adverse events happening with this disease. So, I mean, some of the reasons that this is happening is not just because it's like multifactorial. So these people are more likely to be living in close-knit communities. So that means they're just living in densely populated areas. Um they might live in food deserts, so they don't really have access to getting food. They're going to have to be traveling farther to get food and exposing themselves, ultimately, to other people who might have the illness. Um, some of these people might be living in multi-generational households. So if we think about people who are working essential jobs, like working in at a grocery store, they're still coming back to their homes and their families, and they're exposing people who are living with them to this virus. And if especially... If it's an older person, those people are more vulnerable to having really bad outcomes with the disease. A lot of these people also don't have health insurance. So compared to white people, Hispanic people are three times as likely to be uninsured, and African-American people are almost twice as likely to be uninsured. If people are uninsured, they're going to wait as long as possible (laughs) to go to the hospital because ultimately that hospital visit is so expensive for them. Yeah, and and the CDC has been telling people to, you know, if they, if you feel like you're sick, um, don't go to the hospital, call your primary care physician for a telehealth visit. If people are low income and don't even have a primary care physician, how the heck are they going to call someone on the phone and talk to them and to get a test or know if they should go to the hospital or not. I mean, it's, it's horrible. It all just snowballs at that point. Like people, 
of these races are coming when they're at their last straw. And if you come in at that bad of a state, then you're ultimately not going to have a good outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is that, like, there's a lot of people who are minorities who are overrepresented in um, jails and prisons. And because they're all living in close quarters, we've seen several outbreaks among those prisoners. And ultimately, that's going to affect people of those races because of that. So, I don't know. These are just some issues that, yes, it was COVID-19 that specifically brought out these issues, but any disease could really, or any um, serious public health outbreak could eventually cause the same problem in the future unless there's something done about it. So, I don't really know what the right answer is. I think it's just more accessible care. Um Especially, um, I mentioned the food desert thing, having like more accessible groceries, having cheaper health insurance for people, having better paid jobs for the people who are working at grocery stores so that they can afford health insurance. There are certain things that can be put into place, but yeah. at this time, it's just not available for them. So it's really exactly. unfortunate. And cultural competence and implicit bias training in hospitals is important, too, because there's a reason why a lot of people from these populations aren't, even if they can afford insurance or they can't, there's a reason why they're staying away from the healthcare system. They may not feel heard. They may not feel like they're actually being listened to when they go in. And we can talk about this in future episodes when it comes to maternal care and mental health care um, for minority populations. But I think, again, like you said, this just exacerbates those, those issues. And um, another population who we wanted to talk about today is the Native and Indigenous population. And just rebounding off of what you said, there's just, with, these, with this population, they just don't have access to hospitals. That's just the fact of the matter, or their hospitals that they have there aren't made to treat super severe illnesses like what COVID causes. So right now we always talk about New York and New Jersey being the highest rate of cases that there are, but actually right after New York and New Jersey is Navajo Nation in the amount of cases. And I don't think that that's talked about enough, honestly. I had no idea until I was like scrolling through um, Snapchat the other day. I was telling Christy about this. Um, And there's like the random articles they had. And they had an article about the Navajo Nation and what they were facing with this virus. And honestly, I had no idea until I saw that. So it's it's just really sad. Um, So what makes this population so vulnerable is that they don't have a lot of access to basic resources. So, for example, a lot of the households may not have clean and running water. Um, they don't have reliable electricity, which if you think about America, like somewhere in America not having these things, I don't know, that's just crazy to me. Like, you wouldn't think that there would be places here that would have that. I mean, we all talk about Flint, Michigan, and how that's still a problem till today, but I had no idea that this was an issue in the indigenous um area. So that was interesting to see. Also, um, we were talking about healthcare facilities that they may have there. And if you compare the amount of spending that the government puts in to that, it's a lot lower than what you see for 
veterans medical centers and Medicare spending. And this is not to say that they should not be spending as much money as they are on those populations. They obviously should, but it just kind of highlights how this is kind of the forgotten population. It's kind of swept under the rug. No one really cares to put funding towards these people. So I don't know. This is all just very depressing for me to kind of list out. But um, another thing about them is that uh, they just have like more diseases that would predispose them to having severe coronavirus illness. So we know that asthma is really um, is a really important risk factor. So Native Americans have the highest rates of asthma than any other population in the United States. And they are also three times more likely than any other race to have diabetes. So it's just a recipe for disaster over there. And we talked yeah. a little bit about food deserts before, but they also have an issue with um, having access to grocery stores there. So it all just comes together and creates a huge healthcare problem over there. Yeah, and I feel like one of the bigger healthcare topics that reached, you know, a household level where everyone was talking about it before COVID-19 is the price of insulin and how people in the United States with diabetes don't have access to the medications they need. If you see here that Native Americans experience diabetes at three times more three times more than any other racial or ethnic group in the United States, they already are experiencing such a huge disparity and such a huge um, accessibility issue with the medications that they need for even just that disease, let alone a whole pandemic that is affecting everyone. It's just disheartening. Yeah. um, I don't know. This has just always been an issue, I think, in America is just not giving enough attention to the indigenous population. Oh my God, I can't even say that word. But um, I, I hope that this can really bring out some of the issues that we are having there, especially with their healthcare system and yes. really highlight how they do need more funding in order to care properly for the people. So um, another population that we've been talking about um is the lgbtq community so my friend actually sent me this article and was like this would be something that'd be really interesting to talk about on your podcast and honestly this wasn't a community that i would have thought would have been so heavily effective but i started reading this article and um we usually link the articles in our posts on anchor so i really recommend you guys if any article read this one because it's so easily readable it's It's an amazing article so i'm just gonna pull out some of the highlights for you guys but so it's like a population that has unique challenges right so where we see that there's a lot of health issues with those other communities that we talked about before i see or there's like a lot of um problems in terms of their occupations that they have. So, for example, a lot of the LGBTQ community, I'm just trying to pull out the specific number from here, um, 14 million, that's the number. There's 14 million people living um, in the United States who identify with the LGBTQ community, and more than 5 million of them work in jobs that are impacted by COVID-19. 
So these are people who are working in restaurants and food service who may have gotten laid off because that industry is just not um, considered essential right now. Um, hospitals, K through 12 or higher education and retail industries, which is also another area that, you know, there's been a lot of layoffs for. Um, also, nearly one in 10 LGBTQ people are unemployed. So if you're unemployed, you can't afford health insurance. Um, you're more likely to live in poverty and they just can't, they don't have access to things that most people would have access to. They can't go to the doctor, like you were saying before. They can't afford to go even do telehealth visits. So this population is just very uniquely affected. I don't know. It's crazy to think about. Also, if you think about people with who identify as that, um, someone like me, I've been supported like by my family my whole life. Basically, I'm 24 right now. Um, and luckily my parents are keeping me under their health insurance and it's been good, but some of these people might be rejected by their family and, you know, they kind of have to survive off of their own means. And especially in a pandemic like this, it's really hard to really afford to have a roof over your head, be able to pay for your health insurance, be able to pay for your doctor's visits. So... I don't know. It's just been very interesting to read that article. I recommend you guys all read into it, too. Yeah, and this issue as a whole just, again, touches on the point that our healthcare system and our healthcare workers, we need to have a system in place for so that everyone who is patient-centered is culturally sensitive and also sensitive to this community because if people don't feel heard if they don't feel seen if they don't feel like they can trust their healthcare providers they're not going to seek out medical help especially um in an emergency situation such as this one yeah and i think a lot of lgbtq people have issues with the healthcare system in that mm -hmm. they aren't acknowledged as the gender that they want to be seen as for example so this just highlights another issue that, you know, moving forward, I hope we address it as a healthcare system, as a future physician. I'm hoping that I can, you know, help with this problem and make yeah. them more comfortable to come in. So our next population is the elderly population. So Christy, would you like to talk yes. about that? So this is an interesting one for a few reasons. I Correct me if I'm wrong, Rachana, but at least I feel like we talked about this. Once there was the outbreak in the long-term care facility in Washington State, that's when a lot of people started to take COVID-19 seriously in the United States. That was the first big hub, the first big hotspot, and that's when a lot of these slow shutdowns started to happen is when we started to see the spread there and a lot of deaths, unfortunately. Yeah. So that's a big reason why we wanted to talk about this population. Another reason is because the treatment that we um, give to our elderly population is very different than in a lot of other countries and a lot of other cultures. And I highly suggest you all out there read Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. He is a physician. Um, he worked in policy under the Obama administration. He is currently the CEO of the Amazon Berkshire Hathaway J.P. Morgan healthcare venture Haven, a huge um, figure in healthcare. But his book is all about 
our long-term care and how we care for the elderly population and how it started and what it should look like in the future. And I think after this, we will start to think about that a lot more. And actually, right before COVID-19 really became an issue in the United States, my grandfather was living with my parents and they just had to move him into a long-term care facility. And literally the week after, it got completely shut down. So he's still there, but no visitors, um, no interaction between people in the long-term care facility. And for someone with um, memory issues, that's very uh, dilapidating and scary and sad, but it's what has to be done because these long-term care facilities are becoming these extremely high-risk areas just because of how close people are to one another and how um, how susceptible this population is to contracting um, uh, the worst-case scenario in terms of COVID-19. So just some statistics here because we want to come at you, of course, like we have this whole episode with evidence-based information, but 70% of coronavirus deaths in Minnesota alone, just an example of a state that I feel like isn't not talked a lot about in the news, 70% of their deaths have come from long-term care facilities. In at least six states, the fatalities account for half, the fatalities in the long-term care facilities account for half of all COVID-19 deaths, which is a huge number. And some places in Europe are seeing the same trend, but it's mostly an issue in the United States. And this comes from a number of reasons. It's um, some long-term care facilities. It's kind of a long, a long time known thing that they aren't run in the most efficient way. A lot of them violate health standards, but a lot of long-term care facilities are really doing the best that they can with the little help that they get, whether it be from the government or from the corporations that uh, run them. And so they're get, they aren't getting a lot of resources, they aren't getting a lot of attention, but yet they account for roughly half of the deaths in most of these places in the United States. And it all just comes from in this article, they quoted that it just comes from the fact of the American society and that we don't value the older, the elderly population's lives as much as we value other people's. And this also comes into account with what you said, Rachana, about um, a lot of the ethnic minority population and the populations of color is that a lot of these populations have multi-generational households. And so that was a huge risk factor in having multi-generations in a household but here the issue is that people are in a separate facility and they're all confined yeah it's just like nowhere is safe for these people what is the solution yeah Yeah. that's what's such a hard thing about this whole issue is that where are the solutions like where are they going to come from and how are we going to figure that out and it's just I feel like the um overwhelming fact here with long-term care is that the employees are just overrun. There aren't enough employees that want to work in the long-term care space. There isn't a lot of funding. Wages are not high in this space. So again, it comes into question of wages and how accessible jobs are in this space and how desirable they are. But a lot of people have been quitting. Right before COVID-19 got bad, a lot of people were quitting their jobs at long-term care facilities because they couldn't take it anymore especially when people are in isolation. 
these nurses and these caretakers at these facilities are seeing really devastating things. And I mean, I like we said before, it's great that nurses are getting recognition, mostly in hospitals. But I feel like a lot of the forgotten nurses and caretakers have been in the long-term care space and they haven't been getting donations for masks. They haven't been getting food delivered to them in the same capacity. And so hopefully a few of you listening into this can, you know, look to that population as well. And, you know, hospitals, of course, are such an important part, are probably the most important part of this whole thing. But long-term care facilities are too. And I guess the last point I'd make here is that most residents pay for long-term care through Medicaid, and that doesn't provide facilities with a lot of reimbursement, so there's not a great incentive to put money into these places because a lot of people aren't getting money back from it, from the corporation side or from the um, facilitator side. Yeah, they Um, have a very low budget to run these facilities. Exactly. I don't even know if they're able to afford giving the, you know, hazard pay for the people that are working there to give them the protection they need in order to protect their residents. There's just a whole slew of issues that can come from that. Exactly. And um, a different population that we touched on before, and I feel like is a good way to wrap up because a lot of these social social issues that we have in our country, a lot of the economic um, inequality that we have, how we treat populations um, and how we treat ethnic minorities in this country really come down to our detention camps and the correctional facilities that we have in our country. And like we said in our first episode, the long-term care facilities were a huge place where cases were connected to, but so were correctional facilities. And in between um, Ohio and in uh, Illinois, 96% of nearly 3,300 inmates with coronavirus were asymptomatic. And this comes into play when we think about how we go about testing in this country. We're mostly only testing people who have a prescription or who have shown symptoms. And if you have this many people who are asymptomatic and living in such close quarters, it just brings to light a lot of issues that we have in just our, and how we treat those who are incarcerated and those who are being detained at the border. And, you know, these places are the largest known sources of coronavirus infections. And it's just horrible to think about. Um, You know, all of these things we talked about today, it just comes from a a way of life that Russia and I like to talk about a lot. And Natalie, too, is just if we all care for one another, a lot of these problems start to go away when we think about other people other than ourselves. And we touched upon this in our last episode with the protests. No one likes to stay home all day no one likes that life has completely changed but we're doing it because we should be caring about other people's health and about our country as a whole but you know that's the only way a lot of these problems are going to be solved is if we start to educate ourselves and look at other populations that are different than how we live and or how we look or how we um you know what we value And, um, you know, I think that's going to be an issue that we're always tackling in the United States, unfortunately. 
Yeah, um, and you know, we've been wrapping up the past few episodes with the number of cases that we've had. So as of today, May 6th, we have over a million cases in the U.S., which is crazy. And we have 70,000 deaths from COVID-19. And we kind of looked at the curve data. So the curve is just um, with new cases that have been reported every day. And if you do look at the overall graph, it does look like it's flattening per se. But flattening means that there's still 20,000 cases being reported a day. So that's a lot of people (laughs) that are still being infected by this. This is still an ongoing problem that we need to be cautious of and the social distancing provisions are still being put in place for a reason. So I don't know, is there anything you'd like to add to that, Christy? I would just say that when people say we're all in this together, we talked about this before, like obviously how we all are dealing with this and our situations are completely different. Like I have a huge privilege in the fact that I'm able to work from home and stay in an apartment and you know, keep my job. But I think what we need to start saying is we're all in this together in the fact that what we do will impact a ton of other people's lives. If you continue to go out aimlessly without a cause or without a purpose and you infect other people, I mean, there isn't enough data to understand how many people each person infects and how negative or how um, dangerous that infection could be to somebody. It's just, we all have to take the steps together. And so, yes, we're all in it together. You have to just live your life like you have the disease because that's the only way we can really stop this and keep people healthy is just by thinking about other people and thinking about the other people you interact with, Um, you know, by wearing a mask when you go out and washing your hands and staying in as much as you can. I think that's where I would end on that because as some states start to open up, a lot of us start to think that everything is getting better, which, you know, better is a relative term, but, you know, we can't, we can't hold back just yet. Yeah. And I guess another silver lining of this is that over the weekend in New York and New Jersey, they opened, I'm not not sure about D.C. too, but they opened a lot of public parks. So a lot of people have been able to go out um, while maintaining their distance of six feet apart, of course. But hopefully if we keep on wearing the masks and try to follow the rules that they put in place, they'll start to be able to slowly open things up again. Mm -hmm. But we all just kind of have to adhere to the social responsibility that we have to protect other people and try to follow the rules for as long as we need to in order for this to finally end and for us to kind of go back to our new normal. Yep, I think new normal is a great way to describe (laughs) what this is going to look like, but yeah. (laughs) All right, guys, with that, I think we're done with for today. Um, Stay tuned. We'll probably have another episode in two weeks. But bye, guys.